0: Hi, everyone. We'll have a new Deeper Dig episode next week, but for now, I wanted to share one more piece from the Vermont Conversation with David Goodman. Every week, VT Digger publishes an hour of David's interviews, which also air on WDEV Radio every Wednesday. And this week's episode is a wide-ranging look back at the pandemic, how we got here, and how it ends. Stay tuned for the full interview, and subscribe to David's show for more episodes like this. Just search for Vermont Conversation wherever you listen to podcasts. Enjoy. I think what's obvious to everybody is that we did not have leadership from the top. We did not have a consistent message. We did not have a dependence on the science. And we did not have anything remotely like a national strategy that we would use to combat almost anything.
1: Welcome to the Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. For this final Vermont Conversation of 2020, we're going to look back at this year of the pandemic and look ahead to explore how it all ends. Back in March, when the COVID-19 outbreak was in its early days, I asked my brother Steve Goodman to join me on the Vermont Conversation to talk about what we could expect with this new virus. Steve Goodman is an associate dean at Stanford Medical School, where he is also a professor of epidemiology and population health and medicine. Earlier this month, he testified before the FDA as an outside expert on the new vaccines from Pfizer and Moderna. Back in March, Steve described the coronavirus as a tsunami that was about to hit. His words were prescient. Nine months later, 335,000 Americans have died from COVID-19, and 20 million people have been infected. Vermont, once an outlier with few COVID deaths and infections— Lately averages over 80 new cases and two deaths per day. I checked in with Steve to hear his thoughts about where we are, how we got here, and to discuss the promise of vaccines. Steve, welcome back to the Vermont Conversation. Thanks for having me. President-elect Biden said this week that the toughest days of the pandemic are ahead of us. What do you see as you look ahead and what would prompt him? You know, it's pretty extraordinary for a national leader to prepare the country that way.
0: Well, first of all, I think he doesn't want to uh, set expectations too high for when he enters because he's going to be facing a pretty rough uh, on, oncoming, incoming Edwin uh, obviously I think everybody knows that the rates across the country of COVID-19 right now are, um, reaching, uh, peaks not seen before across the country. Um, they are starting to come down in a number of States, but these are coming down from very, very high levels. And, uh, I think he's talking about that also in anticipation of what may be a sad, um, a, uh, follow on to Christmas, um, when the national travel was, while down from a year ago, was not that far down. And uh, it is clear that families gathered and these indoor gatherings of close relatives and uh, people who are unlikely to be wearing masks and then dispersing uh, geographically back to their communities is probably one of the most potent ways to spread the virus. And given that we're at all-time highs in many communities of... um, of the prevalence of the virus, this could be a real COVID bomb that goes off just when um, Biden's coming in.
1: I mean, we are already at, uh, you know, over 300,000 dead. Uh, we're hearing, you know, daily death tolls of 3,000 in that range. How bad can it get?
0: Well, I do think it, we're at a very high level now. I, I don't want to project how bad could it get because I think it is going to turn around um, we're just seeing beginning to see the, the the first signs of that but of course the the, the Christmas rush may may, may overwhelm them um, I think with Biden's a team that takes science seriously a team that is going to message consistently about what needs to be done and with the very, very rapidly increasing numbers of people being immunized. We're going to get a um, we're going to get a countervailing force against this uh, force that's that's pushing the rates up. Uh, I think it's really Im- important to recognize that um, a very, very large percentage of the uh, deaths are coming from uh, the the oldest. So twenty. <clears throat> um, uh, let's see. The uh, 60% of the deaths are coming in people who are 75 and older, 80% in 65 and older, and and they only make up about a 13% of the population. So if we can just immunize those, just immunize those, and still it's a very large number, or get get control, and and only a small number of those, maybe 10% or 5% are living in long-term care facilities. So if we can just immunize the folks who live in long-term care facilities, we will immediately reduce the number of deaths by on the order of 50%.
1: So that leads to the question that if we were to, let's say, vaccinate everyone over 50 years of age, is that enough for us to then resume some semblance of normal life, going to weddings, going to group gatherings? Um, And will all the precautions that we now take still be necessary if people over 50 are vaccinated?
0: Well, let me just take a step back from that for a second. Um, And because we're not going to be able to snap our fingers and immunize everybody over 50. And yes, if we immunized everybody over 50, we would magically get rid of 97% of the deaths. So in some sense, if death is the only metric and we could just snap our fingers tomorrow and have everybody over 50 immunized, then absolutely, we would probably be able to get back to life as normal. But it's a long way between now and then. And age is not the only factor here and death is not the only factor here. So the reason I hesitate to answer it phrased like that is it's Easily going to be six to nine months before we can get anywhere close to the percentages vaccinated that would get us back to "quote unquote" life as normal. That's a. B, um, we between now and then we're going to have to continue to maintain virtually everything we're doing now. That's that second, which is the, the masking and the distancing. C. We have to remember that this epidemic is hundreds of epidemics. It's very local. It's hyper local. So the degree of protection that we're of uptake of the vaccine is going to vary. Um, The degree of uh, uh, adoption of of uh, the distancing and the masking we see now is highly variable. And the degree of concentration and protection of the elderly in various places is very variable. So while we might be able to control uh, the virus again in six to eight months pretty well across the country, we're still going to see hot spots. We also know that there is a lot of hesitancy about the vaccines right now. We don't know how many people at what ages will be accepting it. And um, we know that there is some reticence right now in minority and high-risk communities about vaccine acceptance that may fade away as millions upon millions get it. It may increase if we start to see side effects that we're not anticipating right now. So we actually, it's not in our power to immunize 100% of anybody. Uh, It's all about continued messaging Um, surveillance um, and trust that the um, in in the communities that that these vaccines about which we still don't have full information are balance uh, good for them Uh, the other thing that we don't know which is really quite critical and I hope we'll know in six months is how long the protection lasts we don't know that it lasts six months might last three months, might last six, might last a year, might last many years. We're hoping, praying, and we have good reason to believe it will last at least a year, or I should say nine months to a year, but we don't know yet. So there's a lot to learn. So I hesitate to have talk about this fantasy state in which all the folks over a certain age get immunized because it's gonna be such a tough road from here to there. And remember, there are many people younger than 50 who who need it as well um, for all sorts of reasons. Um, and uh, the, the distribution is not going to be strictly by age.
1: Um, you testified before the FDA about both the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines in December talk about these vaccines. Explain the difference between these so-called Myrna vaccines and traditional vaccines. What's new and special about these?
0: Yes. Well, uh, they're called mRNA vaccines. So the M is for messenger, uh, and RNA is the nucleic acid, RNA, which um, is the key intermediary between DNA, which is our genetic code, And the formation of proteins, which is how our body works. Um, And they're really incredibly clever, and they are new, which is not to say that they haven't been in development for a long time. In fact, the the, the first try at developing some of these vaccines were in the previous uh, iterations of the coronavirus, but they never had to be administered. So the um,
1: you say um, the previous iterations, like SARS right. and MERS, those—that's
0: that, right. That's that's where this—it's first started to be uh, the technology, uh, first started to be developed. But we've never developed the vaccine to be administered at this scale with this urgency. Um, there's never been an mRNA vaccine approved for general use. So the. What the mRNA vaccine does is extremely clever. It's extremely clever. But you have to know what mRNA does. (laughs) What mRNA does is it travels in a normal cell. It travels uh, from the nucleus into the cytoplasm, which is just sort of the, the, um, the, the substance of the cell. And there is... Used as a blueprint to make proteins, so you get directly from the mRNA the, um, the, the 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 script that tells the cell how to make a protein. So what we're doing here is instead of it being part of the cell's genetic machinery to make proteins, we're introducing the mRNA from the outside. In a sense, we're we're sending. We're sending the cell a message it can understand. Never gets into the nucleus, never touches the DNA, which means it can't change the cell. All it is is a blueprint that gets into the cell, and the cell is tricked. It thinks that it created the messenger RNA, but it's coming in a little fat envelope, in a little fat bubble that's taken into the cell, and all of a sudden it's floating around like normal. And it's literally a little it's a frame by frame it's like a little movie that that forces the cell or the cell is tricked into creating a protein from that mrna now what is the protein magic it's the spike protein from the coronavirus it is the protein that sits on the surface that everyone has seen pictures of with the little like the little uh, palm tree that sticks out and so the cell creates that And then the body reacts to it. So it creates thousands, millions, maybe billions of these little spike proteins. And then the body reacts to it. But there's no coronavirus there. There's no hint. There's no substance of the original virus that's being introduced in the body. This is very different than other vaccines. So all it is is a little blueprint for that one protein. Which by itself causes absolutely no damage. It tricks the cells into creating the protein. The body recognizes it as foreign. It creates antibodies to it, and also we hope a memory, uh, um, uh, a memory of immunity. And then it's poised to uh, attack real cells that show the spike protein if the um, if the virus ever invades.
1: So, so that's how this- they work. To our traditional childhood vaccines that we all know, how do those work?
0: Those they they use several technologies. Now I'm not an immunologist, but they they will, for example, introduce an inactive. There's several versions of it, um, but there there are two main ones. One is they either introduce a weakened version of the original virus. So this was like the original polio vaccine. So it, it was greatly weakened, but, but you could still mount an immune reaction to it. And in fact, in immunocompromised people, you could actually develop the disease, which made them slightly dangerous. And this happened in uh, the polio uh, uh, vaccine, the original polio vaccine. The second kind, which was the second phase of the polio vaccine, is the killed uh, virus, which is it's it's not a weakened virus it it doesn't replicate, um, but it's it's inactivated but it still has the material of the virus so it's in, when it's injected into the body, the the body recognizes it as foreign, um, and uh, and develops an immune reaction to it. So the original technologies, which are still used, several of the vaccines in production um, are uh, have this. Um, are, are built exactly like this. Um, so what the new technologies allow us to do is introduce some of the same, what we call antigens, the same things that the body reacts, but without the rest of the virus, killed so, or not killed. So
1: with so no that toxin, you still get the reaction.
0: That's right. You still get response. the the spike protein. And in fact, not only do you get the spike protein, because we could inject it right now, you get the body to create it. So it tricks the body into creating the spike protein. And that appears to be one of the reasons why it uh, is so safe. Um, We do uh, get some local reactions to it. They seem to be uh, very brief. Uh, We're still watching for the more serious uh, long-term reactions. Uh, And uh, there's been some hint of uh, a few cases of of uh, uh, serious allergic reactions. We're going to have to watch those very, uh, very uh, carefully as well. But remember, uh, many tens of thousands of people have been now injected. In fact, we're probably getting close to a million. And we're only seeing a few of these. So we're watching carefully. But I think the question with these vaccines at every point has to be not as what what is their absolute safety, that is, did Anyone have any kind of reaction that you'd be worried about? But what is it? What is its safety compared to the threat? What we we have to be comparing it to is what is the threat from COVID nineteen, and when you compare what looks to be the safety of these vaccines, which look to be for the moment extraordinarily safe, the 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 threat is so many hundreds of times greater than any possible threat of of the vaccine itself so that's always the metric we need to be uh comparing the safety to there's there's no vaccine that is 100 safe in the sense that i can guarantee that if i inject this into you you absolutely cannot have something bad happen to you but that's never the situation the only reason we're thinking of doing that is because if you don't do it you you Uh, still are under threat from being infected and having something bad happen because of COVID-19. And that risk-benefit ratio right now looks to be uh, pretty spectacular.
1: So we're being told that after vaccination, you still have to maintain social distance and wear a mask. Um, If we've had clinical trials going on for many months now with tens of thousands of people in the trials why don't we yet know whether you can spread disease after vaccination
0: well that's a great question so there there are two reasons to maintain the the public health distancing one is of course that um, uh, that many people in the community will still not be protected Um, and it's going to be very 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 confusing and complicated if people who are immunized selectively say, well, they don't have to wear masks, whatever. So there's a sort of social modeling that we have to, 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 um, uh, reinforce. But the other part, which is more important is that we actually don't know whether the vaccine protects you just against your own infection or whether it prevents you from carrying the virus and spreading it to others. We think that's likely true, but, but that's not what the trials were designed to test because if you're going to test that you have to start testing all the members of the families of the people who are in the trials you also had to test the people in the trials more often to make sure they themselves were not infected because we would only know that from antibody testing and they were not tested that frequently so there are two reasons we don't know it from within the trials one is we didn't test the people in contact with the people in the trials which would have made them immensely more complicated then they basically become large community-based observational studies and b they did not continually test every member every um uh participant in the trial to know when they might become infectious and when they would be infectious to others so that's why we don't know also even though we've done this in in um tens of thousands of people the actual number of cases in these trials was tiny it was less than 20. in fact the number of serious cases what they defined as serious in the moderna trial I believe was only one case in the vaccinated group was serious and only five in or four or five in the pfizer trial in mm-hmm. in over thirty five thousand people who were immunized so if if you're reducing the number of serious cases that, that that means the number of people who you who in theory would be most infectious um first of all is very 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 small so it's very hard to look at comparisons uh when you're dealing with numbers that small when you only have that many in the immunized groups um now there were many more there was obviously between uh 10 and uh, 20 times more uh in, in cases in the um in the, uh, uh, placebo group. Um, but of course they're not the ones who we think are protected from spreading it. We know they're not. Right. So it's mainly, the main focus is on the people who were, uh, protected in the, um, uh, in the vaccinated group. And they're probably more than there were cases because we know that they're asymptomatic, um, uh, individuals. And what we don't know is whether the vaccine, a limit in a sense, uh, we don't know how many people were asymptomatically infected who had the vaccine. It could be that their symptoms were knocked back so far that there were quite a lot of asymptomatic folks. But whether they were spreaders of the vaccine or not, we just don't know.
1: So two vaccines, Pfizer and Moderna, have been approved, but uh, a number of others are now In the pipeline, how many vaccines do you uh, think will will be uh, approved and be in circulation over the next few months?
0: This is a very good question. Um, I think the next one in line uh, is either AstraZeneca or Johnson and Johnson. I don't know the exact timeline. Um, The thing about the two current. vaccines <clears throat> is that um, unlike all the other technologies, these can be literally manufactured. Every other technology which uses some version of a whole virus needs to be grown in some way in a, in a, biologic, uh, uh, in a biologic medium. So the, um,
1: these others are not mRNA vaccines. No,
0: they're not mRNA. These are the only two mRNA vaccines that uh, that I'm aware of. The and, and there's not another one immediately behind them in the pipeline. So these can be literally manufactured through genetic engineering, like a little factory. And the factory is not growing it in <clears throat> in egg medium or or whatever. It's it's literally building it, uh, through the, um, um, uh, you know, using the same script (laughs) in some sense, a similar script to what it's forcing the, uh, to the cells to use, although it's using it to build the, the MRNA. And this is also why they were able to do it so fast. They were able to start doing this literally days after they got the genetic sequence that was published by the, the, by the Chinese scientists which came just weeks after the, um, the virus was first identified in China. So th- we didn't have to have samples. All we needed was that genetic code, and uh, we were, we were uh, off to the races. So they are making these so fast, and it's such a volume that at least for the US, now we, we, there are two completely different questions here. One is what's going to happen in the US And the second is what's going to happen in the rest of the world. Um, I don't know 100% what is going to happen in the U.S. because between Pfizer and Moderna, they're going to be making hundreds of millions of doses, not enough to cover the whole U.S., but they can still probably make them faster than some of the other manufacturers can. Now, there are literally tens of millions of doses of these other vaccines as well being stockpiled and they will be released as soon as those, those um, vaccines are approved. But again, we don't know the results of those trials. So we don't know what the market will accept. And if those vaccines come out at 70% effective or 60% effective, they're using different technologies. It may be that people will just wait for the more effective vaccine. They shouldn't, but they might. So, and also the other, the other vaccines will have different side effect profiles. Maybe they're not as safe. Now, the other thing that's interesting about the other vaccines is several of the others are single shot vaccines. They're not double shots. So both Moderna and and Pfizer uh, require two different injections about three or four weeks apart. But I believe the J&J is only a single injection vaccine. Hmm. So whatever protection you get, you get after one. And the, the amount of protection you get from the from the current vaccines after one is only in the range of, we're not 100% sure, about maybe 60%, 60, 70%. It's a little unclear, 50, 60, 70%. And it may be different in different age groups. Um, the other vaccines may have many other properties that make them better in some ways or better in certain settings. They might be easier to transport. They um, uh, They might have more long-lasting immunity. We just don't know. We just don't know. So we're going to need as many as possible. But in the U.S. specifically, the the, the current mRNA vaccines may, may flood the market in a way that inhibits the uptake of others. But we're going to need more probably both the United States and certainly around the world because the developing world has bought up so many doses of the current mRNA vaccines.
1: My guest for this conversation is Dr. Steve Goodman. He is a professor of medicine and epidemiology at the Stanford School of Medicine, where he's also a dean. Uh, He is also my brother. Uh, Steve, change gears a little bit and talk about how did the richest country in the world become home to the worst outbreak of COVID-19 in the world? Is this a failure of traditional public health measures or something else?
0: Well, this is a story that will be told and retold, I think, is a lesson. It's a cautionary lesson um, to many audiences uh, going forward. I will say that it's hard for us to either know or for me to tell the story in its full complexity uh, while we're still in the middle of it. And there's still many facts that are only coming out now. I think what's obvious to everybody is that we did not have leadership from the top. We did not have a consistent message. We did not have a dependence on the science. And we did not have anything remotely like a national strategy that we would use to combat almost anything. We saw it in the right from the beginning, in the waving away of the seriousness of the virus, uh, which we're told by the president himself, uh, was contrary to what he knew about the virus. So that was particularly shocking. Um, and in order to get people, this is a public health issue to do what they probably really would not like to do, which is to wear masks and to stay away from other people and, and, and to do so in a way that might harm businesses and their communities you need a consistent rationale, justification, modeling message from the top at the very least, at the very least. So you need consistent messaging from the top. You need a top-down strategy in how we're going to attack this. It, It was attacking everybody, every state. It happened at different times, but it's happened everywhere. You needed planning as far as testing goes, equipment, data, data has been absolutely critical uh, and n- virtually none of that occurred. Virtually none of it occurred. And the reasons for it, I think many of your listeners probably know well. There, there was tremendous amount of strife, controversy, and in fact, um, counter messaging at the very top where there were some people counseling uh, the president, telling him perhaps what he wanted to hear, which is that there was this bizarre idea that the more people that got sick, the more we would be protected, uh, with the only uh, caveat in there being that the idea was that the quote-unquote low-risk people would get sick, and they would be basically create enough protection in the community so the, <clears throat> the older and more vulnerable members of the population would be safer to engage in economic activity. It was not a plan that would ever have worked. It's not a plan that could ever have worked. It's a plan that was actually tried out and is currently being tried out in some ways in a, in a number of states, uh, like Florida. Uh, and it's not working out too well. Um, so it, 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 it was sort of a crazy idea where the idea of fighting the virus was to... Um, Uh, get people sick. Obviously, you don't bite a virus by getting people sick. And the idea that you could cordon off uh, the vulnerable from the quote unquote non-vulnerable. And we found both it was virtually impossible to do that. And second of all, the so-called non-vulnerable, which are the younger, younger folks, you know, the young doesn't mean just 18 years old. They were talking about 30 years old and, you know, early 40s. Uh, They were vulnerable too. Now, they weren't as vulnerable to death. But what we're learning now is that they are vulnerable to a whole host of prolonged symptoms that has debilitated some proportion of them. But getting back to your original question, we there was clearly an enormous failure from the top uh, that made it very difficult for anyone else to to build an effective response on their own, even though the governors desperately tried. There was also a neutering and silencing of our main public health agency, which was the Centers for Disease Control, and that has been in the newspapers uh, as well. Now, there is a second half of this, though, which which was reflected in your question, which is the failure of public health. I don't think there was, in some sense, any failure of public health, but there has been a failure of investment in public health over decades. Prevention always is the last thing to get it, to see a penny. And they've been cut and they've been cut and they've been cut. So whether one would, con- so it is absolutely true that our public health infrastructure was not up to the task. Even with ideal leadership from the top, we didn't have the people, we didn't have the things, we didn't have the communication infrastructure. We had almost none of the pieces in sufficient volume um, to respond to this. I don't want to call it a a, a failure of public health because everybody in public health was trying so hard. But when no resources are devoted to the infrastructure, it is completely predictable. It is completely predictable that the response to one of the great challenges of our generation uh, would be inadequate.
1: So, you've mentioned in general terms the failures at the top, but one of the people at the top uh, was, uh, in fact, Trump's main COVID advisor in the last half year, Dr. (laughs) Scott Atlas, a radiologist from Stanford, frequent guest on Fox News. Um, He resigned only recently under a torrent of criticism, including from you and your colleagues at Stanford, who essentially said he was a charlatan. What do you think is the impact uh, of a guy like Scott Atlas, who was one of the big proponents of this idea of herd immunity that you described, where the more people that get sick, the better. It is hard to isolate his effect.
0: Um, it, it's easy to tell the tale uh, that that he was influencing the president. Uh, clearly, the president liked what he was saying. He was brought on to the coronavirus task force when they already had Dr. Debbie Burks and uh, Tony Fauci, who you would think would be sufficient in terms of medical expertise. And then he was brought on with literally no expertise in this area. And the reason he was brought on was not actually because they thought he had some greater wisdom, uh, but because he said what the administration already wanted to say. So I, I think that the causal direction was in the opposite direction. They were looking for someone who would had some shred of credibility in terms of academic bona fides who would say these things uh, and say them to the public in a, in a credible way. And he, his audition was, as you say, on Fox News. And they saw that he was a compelling speaker and that he spoke with seeming authority. And they liked that. So they brought him on to be the spokesman of a message that they already wanted to send. So it wasn't, I think, that he was himself that influential on the administration policy. I believe that that policy was already set. They knew what direction they wanted to take, um, but they needed a someone with some scientific uh, cred, and they thought that he had it. Um, he had the uh, the Stanford pedigree. He... Uh, certainly was a uh, respected uh, neuroradiologist when he was doing that. And I, I don't know anything about him that would in any way impugn his his uh, capability in that regard. But he had no expertise in the area in which he was speaking. And more importantly, he was saying things that were completely counter to the science, literally telling people to get together en masse for the holidays um, uh, and, and saying things that were That that were objectively false, even though the next day, sometimes he would say he would reverse himself and point and say something objectively true. And when challenged, he would always point to that second uh, statement. So he but he was part of this cacophony of voices from the top that did appear in the media. And as he wrote a piece as uh, recently as last week in the Wall Street Journal op ed piece which said that the whole fault for the epidemic falls on the media itself and scientific journals. He also took scientific journals to task. So apparently everybody else uh, in this blame shifting exercise is, is responsible for this. Um, and, and I will say the, the, the degree to which something like mask wearing has been politicized is absolutely astonishing. Astonishing. When one, one couldn't have imagined it or envisioned it, uh, you know, some six to n- nine months ago, but that has undermined things as well. And he's part of that crowd that has that has done that. So, it, how much is he uh, at fault? Um, I think if they didn't find him, they would have found somebody else. Right. Um, but he was certainly part of that crowd that presented a very confusing picture to that subset of people. Who did not want to follow public health advice? And remember, it only takes a a, a minority. The the super spreading events only require a, a relatively few people to ignite a forest fire. And and that's what this was. It was like in a tind- it was a small fire in a tinderbox. Hmm. And 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 we have the results that we see.
1: So, what's it going to take in a Biden administration? To actually reassert the role of public health, I mean, you have swaths of the country, the Dakotas, which now rank below many third world countries in terms of, uh, or or I should say above them in terms of infection rates. Um, Do you have some hope that public health can again uh, rule the day? Or is it just give up in, in some areas of the country and wait for the vaccine?
0: Unfortunately, because of the politicization, and I, I don't have a crystal ball and I don't know to what extent messaging for the top can reverse this in the time frame that you're talking about, I do think there are going to be uh, uh, pockets of, of resistance and, and potentially high rates going forward. But I think that public health, that having an organized national response with a chorus of consistent Empathic informed voices will indeed change the direction of the conversation but they can't in the short term uh, but they can't do it by themselves I think if we we're talking about long-term response and I think the most sobering thing to imagine in in the midst of all this is that this is not necessarily the last one we're going to see in our lifetimes Right. In fact, there are many, many reasons to believe that there might be another one coming uh, easily within the next decade, if not two. And we have to be ready. So the rebuilding, I do think that the rebuilding of the credibility and the um, leading by people who are informed, uh, I think that can happen pretty quickly. It will not be so fast to rebuild or to build the national infrastructure that we need not only for this challenge but for the next one and that has to start on day one
1: why do you say i know that um, some of the leaders of the world health organization have um been talking about uh the, the point you just made this is not the last one and it is not even the big one you're saying we can expect something in the next decade what makes you say that
0: well i'm actually depending on other experts (laughs) the uh there are many reasons to believe it could happen there is more that most of these viruses uh come from are are called zoonotic they they come they're transferred to us from animals where they they first get their they get their legs and they mutate and they become more effective and more effective at transmission and infective, um, and then they jump into humans. Uh, and there's more, and as the world population grows, and there's more interfacing between uh, the urban and rural um, uh, settings and and more direct contact with animals. We've seen this in almost every case. There are experts in this area, of which I am not one. Uh, they tell us that this is going to happen uh more and more. So that's all I can say about that. Um basically animals are the laboratory for these viruses. Hmm. And the ones that get out are the ones, preferentially, that they just need it's just a game, it's like a game of dice. You just keep rolling the dice. It mutates, it mutates, it mutates, it infects, it infects, it mutates. Each time it tries to jump to a human, the ones that make the jump are the ones that can infect humans. So we're playing this game of chance and we're rolling the dice against ourselves more and more around the world. And they can emerge from any nook and cranny of the world. Remember where Ebola came from. Remember where this came from. It can happen anywhere.
1: Right. And a big element to this is climate change. As um, agricultural systems are stressed, as the climate is changing, people are venturing further into the forests. And coming into contact with wild animals that they were previously not in contact with before. Um, Let's talk for a minute about where you live, California. How do you explain the skyrocketing numbers of infections in California, a place where officials have taken a relatively aggressive stance in terms of imposing public health measures?
0: Yes. um, I will say I don't have a magic insight into why people are doing what they're doing. Um, There, there's a mathematical relationship between how the presence of the virus in the community, how people behave and how it spreads. So let's not look to policies right now. If it's exploding the way it is, we know that people are mixing in ways that are not safe. We know it. It's in the math. The question is, why are the policies not working? And part of it is that a huge amount of these policies depend on completely voluntary compliance. We keep talking and hearing about lockdown, lockdown. What we have right now is nothing remotely within a light year of a lockdown. We, we know what lockdowns are. We had them you know, earlier this year where people literally couldn't leave their homes. I was just recently just yesterday in, our, uh, in a shopping mall here, you couldn't find a parking space. Now, everybody was masked, they were pretty separate, and this is a very different area than where the rates are exploding. They t- seem to be exploding mainly in Southern California. They're also uh, exploding in areas around here where there's a higher concentration of, of frontline workers and uh, minority communities. I think the more economic stress and distress that there has been, the more people feel impelled to put themselves at risk. They can't; they might be on the verge of of eviction at this point, and they have to go out there. They have to drive those buses. They have to clean those floors. They they have to engage in the economy. And also, there's a huge number of people who are just tired out and don't believe in any of these. Restrictions. What I don't know, and I think people are looking into it, is how much of this is being driven by the sort of by the by the economic activity and engagement. How much is being driven by just regular people ignoring the restrictions, and how much is being driven by large uh, gatherings of people um, in, in engaging in activities that have been stifled for too long, and the, the rejectionists who 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 either reject the reality of the virus or the need to do anything to um, protect against it. Uh, it is very distressing to see. And uh, ultimately, this often results in lockdown, the, the real lockdowns that are com- compl- even more destructive to the economy. So uh, the, the corner is beginning to turn in a few places in California. But again, th- this is the story of you know 50 epidemics Uh, across this country in the 50 states, but in each state, you know, California is an enormous state and the situation in every county and even sub-areas of the counties are are quite different.
1: It's also the story of different different epidemics among different uh, ethnic uh, and, you know, social classes and the level of disparity, the disparate impacts has really been a hallmark of this pandemic where people of color are getting infected and dying at two and three times the rates. What accounts for this incredible disparity that we're seeing?
0: That's an that's a very complicated question. I, I don't think it's fully understood. Some of the simple answers are um, more comorbidities, that is, more underlying conditions. Um, uh, obviously, more people being infected because they are working in higher risk jobs, uh, more crowded, uh, more crowded um, how uh, home conditions, um, maybe a fear from for many of them reporting any degree of symptoms. Remember, even in minority groups, a, a large proportion are going to have minimal to no symptoms. So, if they wanna keep their job and they, they have cold symptoms, they may just go in and, 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 and continue to, to do the job. And this is not just minority groups, anybody under economic stress. So there are probably biologic variables. There are certainly variables related to spread. There almost certainly are variables related to care. And we're, we're hearing, we, we know absolutely for sure that in hospitals that are more overcrowded with less resources, mortality rates go up. So I think there are issues in how quickly people seek care, their ability to protect themselves from being infected, maybe either socially or biologically, um, uh, factors that that increase the, the uh, mortality rate from infection, and perhaps being cared for in settings where there are less resources um bestowed upon them um at, 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 because of where they live and, and and the nature of these care settings so i think it's very complicated and there may well, well be many other reasons as well i, I think we're going to be working as our people are right now trying to understand this phenomenon better
1: so we are now in the uh closing days of what we can only call the year of the pandemic you and I first spoke in March uh, when it began with me uh, calling you because I couldn't believe that my kids were being sent home from school. You know, there was only a trickle uh, and you very memorably uh, told me that the, the little bit of, you know, it was like we were standing on a beach with a little water around our feet and a tsunami was about to hit. Where did you think we would be by the end of the year when we first talked in March? Wow. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I know I've said uh, many, many times during this year that it's hard to see to the next week, no less to the, the end of the uh, year. I I would say that I'm very surprised that we're in a third wave. I, I would say that I, I thought we would learn our lesson. I thought that States next to New York, Ohio would learn from New York and Indiana would learn from Ohio and Dakotas would learn from Indiana. I didn't think that every area of this country would be in denial until they were overwhelmed. I I think that's not something I envisioned. I also, I guess I thought back then that there would be more um, federal response once they actually realize the seriousness of this hard to imagine not responding to a national emergency of this magnitude and we have seen incredibly tragically that that it any that, any, that it hasn't been even remotely the case um so i am surprised that there hasn't been over the course of now 9 months more national coordination, response, just learning from each other. And I never saw coming the politicization of basic public health measures, that it would be seen as a badge of honor in some weird way or, 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 or toughness or macho not to wear a mask, to engage in mass risk behavior, mass spreading behavior. This I didn't see coming. So I think it's all contributed to the disaster that has befallen us, and it may reveal some aspects uh, of the American character which can be exploited by leaders who want to exploit them for what perhaps they saw to be political advantage. It's hard to know. Um, but I, didn't, I, didn't, I can't say that I saw this coming in terms of the response. I did see this coming in terms of the potential for disaster, if nothing much was done, that was clear. But I didn't think that not only would so little be done, but that there would be so many people working to make it worse.
1: How does this thing end?
0: Well, <laughs> depends on how you define to end. I, I think the, the, we're at the beginning of that ending now. We're in the last chapter. It's going to be a long last chapter, but certainly vaccines are going to be, if they are as effective and long-lasting as we hope, uh, are going to be absolutely critical. So I think it's going to end with, in this country, and I have to underscore, in this country, uh, with a more coherent, integrated, coordinated public health response to make the most of what we have at the moment combined with more effective and hopefully fair and just distribution of vaccines as fast as we can get them out. I don't think they're going to provide themselves the protection we need to really shut this down for approximately another nine months. I'm optimistic about the summer, but I can't quite see life getting back to normal on a national basis until maybe next September, but in certain areas of the country, absolutely. Remember That if we can immunize a huge proportion of just those over 65 or 75, we 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 eliminate about 50 percent of the deaths right there. So the the distribution of deaths has been very, very concentrated and we don't have to immunize everybody to eliminate a lot of the deaths, but to eliminate a lot of the suffering uh, we do. So vaccines are gonna be part of it. Distancing, uh, continued public health measures are gonna be part of it with leadership. We don't even know what that looks like yet, Uh, but we will get it. But the final thing to remember is we're only talking about this country. We have whole continents that are, that actually some of whose countries, like in Africa, have controlled things better than we have, but things are beginning to get out of hand. So what will happen around the world, in India, in Africa, parts of Asia, I, I don't know. And I think that's where we're going to have to be thinking uh, and helping a huge amount. This While I'm saying I'm optimistic uh, about this fading by summer or by September, uh, it may be just getting a toehold in some of these countries uh, over the next few months and exploding there like it's exploded here, uh, particularly in areas that are, are poor, uh, conflict areas where you can't mount um, effective public health responses and, and where you have less resources. So end in, in the United States in a way that if you define it as getting back to something close to normal, six to nine months with vaccines and public health response. In the rest of the world, much harder to say. I think there are other experts who are looking in, into that. And obviously, if we can rejoin the World Health Organization and help them out, that would be nice too. And I think that's going to be happen within days of uh, uh, President Elect Biden uh, taking office.
1: Okay. Well, Steve Goodman, I want to thank you for joining us on the Vermont Conversation.
0: Thank you for having me.
1: Steve Goodman is an associate dean at Stanford Medical School, where he is also a professor of epidemiology and population health and medicine, and he's my brother. That does it for this week's Vermont Conversation. You can hear this and all shows at vtdigger.org slash Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. Thanks so much for listening.